The Haftorah this year that we read for Parshas Mishpatim is called Hadabar. It's from Sefer Yirmiyahu. And it's an unusual Haftorah to read because inevitably um, Mishpatim frequently comes out on Parsha Shkolim. And so we read the special Haftorah for Parsha Shkolim. Sometimes it comes out for Rosh Chodesh Ador or Erev Rosh Chodesh. So we read the special Haftorahs for those days. And the Haftorah for Mishpatim itself is uh, few and far between. It always falls on the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh Adar, but the first Adar, which is why more often it comes out in the leap year. So the last time we lane it was three years ago. We're going to lane it this week. We're going to lane it again three years from now in 2025. But because of the other variables, we won't lane it again until 2035. So we're going to miss this Haftorah for 10 years. And it's an unusual Haftorah for another reason as well. Is from Sefer Yirmiyah, and most of the Sefer Yirmiyah Haftorahs that we do are from the uh, three, the Shlosha de Piranusa of the three weeks, because Yirmiyah is a very difficult Sefer to find a positive leaning Haftorah, as most Haftorahs try to be, that also connect up with the Parsha of that particular week. Um, this Haftorah is about King Sidkiyahu, the last king of Yehuda before the Churban Beis HaMikdash. King Sidkiyahu was originally named Matan Yahu. His true name was not Sidkiyahu. Some say the Jews gave him that nickname because they saw him as a very righteous man. Uh, the Divrei Yamim and others actually say that it was Nebuchadnezzar who gave him that name. The king before Sidkiyahu was named uh, Yechonia. And uh, his predecessor, Yechonia, had succeeded his own father, Yehoyakim. Yechonia joined the rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar and allied with Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar had him exiled and dragged him away to Babel in chains and then appointed his uncle, Matanya, to become Sidkiyahu HaMelech, to become the king. According to almost all of Chazal, he was a very righteous man, not a sinner, a good guy, but he believed his advisors. And his advisors counseled him, they were kind of hawkish, and they said, let's go to war against Nebuchadnezzar, let's rebel against him. It's always a great idea. The Navi Yirmiya said, under no circumstances, peace is what we need. Lay low, keep your head down, and Klal Yisrael will survive, the Beis HaMikdash will survive, and Bavel will soon be out in favor of Persia, which in fact is what happened. But Sidkiyahu believed his advisors who told him he was a powerful king, as powerful people often do, and so he went to war against Bavel with disastrous results. The problem is, he had sworn an oath in the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It says in Divrei Hayamim that he had sworn uh, an, an oath, Alpi Hashem, not to rebel when he was installed as a puppet. And therefore, it says in Divrei Hayamim, V'gam ba'melech Nebuchadnezzar morad, asher hishbio be'lokim. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God that he wouldn't do that. Oath-breaking is a very serious thing. When you take an oath on a Sefer Torah, uh, I listened to a Rabbi Weinshier, he said it's scary as old get-out. You take the Sefer Torah out and you actually make an oath. He was part of one once and he told the guy, don't do it, it's not worth it. And terrible things happened to him. And he said, I don't put two and two together. Now, the problem with being an oath-breaker who's a king, and that's this week's Haftorah, after Tzidkiyahu broke his oath, the people of Klal Yisrael will break theirs. 
Tzidkiyahu made Klal Yisrael at the beginning of the Haftorah swear an oath, lehem duror, to set all of their people free and have an emancipation proclamation. In Klal Yisrael at this time, the wealthy owned the poor. The poor sold themselves quite literally into slavery or their children into slavery in order to pay the debts that they had that they simply could not pay. The 99% were in big trouble with the 1% who literally owned them and not with the rhetoric of wage slaves that we have today. But a lot of this was on halachic. This week's parsha tells the halachos of Avdus, six years and then they go free. A woman cannot be a slave after puberty because that's an open invitation to immorality. You have to set her free at 12 unless you marry her. But all of these rules were being disregarded by the rich. So Tzidkiyahu, a righteous man, tried to get the rich to set their slaves free, Abraham Lincoln. And so uh, he said, Set all of their Jewish slaves free. So that no Yehudi would be a servant, a slave to his fellow Jew. And they all agreed and they made the covenant. But the problem with the king who's an oath breaker is that the people follow the king's example. And so the very next Pesach in our Haftorah says, they then compounded their avera of keeping Jews unrighteously as slaves by kidnapping free Jews who they had set free. That afternoon, they rearrested them and made them slaves again. Two DRISs, both at once. And this, says Hashem to Yermia, is the last straw. And the Chorban now must come. So we see a king who doesn't keep his word leads to people who don't keep their word. And the problem is, or not the problem, what that shows us is that the larger story of the Chorban is really a smaller, not so epic historical incident of economics. The story of the Chorban is told through the eyes of the slaves and the rich people who owned them, a micro story of the macro Chorban causes. That, says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who I've been reading lately, is a, a point about how Jewish history is told in Tanakh. Says Rabbi Sachs, all of us all, says there's a clear structure to the way the Torah tells its story. Voracious is about personal relationships, the story of one family being built. And that is the necessary prelude to Shamos, to Exodus, which is about politics and power, liberation and nation building. The large story of the Jewish people is told through the small stories of individuals. We are not part of the Marxist dialectic of history where great events sweep people up so that your actions don't matter. Your actions matter very much. We find the same pattern in the closely linked books of Rus and Shmuel. If you've been doing the Naviyomi, I asked to do Rus before Shmuel. Turns out I was doing it because Rabbi Sachs told me to, even though I hadn't read it. First comes the intensely moving story of Rus, her loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and the kindness of Naomi's distant cousin, Boaz. At the end of the Sefer, we discovered that Rus is the great-grandmother of David, Yisrael's greatest king. It's a prelude to the books of Shmuel, which tell the birth of the Israelite monarchy. It establishes the primacy of the personal over the political. The Torah is telling us that on the surface, history is driven by the pursuit of power. 
in reality is driven by the text and texture of interpersonal relationships. Power diminishes those who wield it no less than those they wield it against. We grow not through exercising power over one another, but kindness, compassion, and listening to one another and making space for one another. Politics made the make the headlines, but what the world thinks large, the Torah thinks is small. What the world dismisses of minor account, the Torah focuses on and frames with minute attention. So as we hear this week's parsha being lamed, as we do a shnayim mikra echatargum, as we work our way through um, through mishpatim and hopefully listen to the haftarah closely this week, think about all of those rules for individuals who own slaves, economics, debts, all of the minutiae of mishpatim, the rules. That is, as somebody and I were talking about a few minutes ago, the social compact. And as long as we all agree to it and to live with what Hashem wants, live small, think, not think locally, act globally. Think locally and act locally because that has a global impact. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and a great week. And we'll see you tomorrow with somebody else.